why is war profitable on a gold standard but not on a Bitcoin standard? The seizability of the gold. And I'm not saying it's it's not a binary. It's not war is profitable, then war is not profitable. It's less profitable on a Bitcoin standard because Bitcoin is more difficult to seize, right. if not impossible to seize. You could still go to war over natural resources, right? But as the war is encroaching, the pe- like people, refugees that are fleeing, right? Typically, they leave behind all their wealth, right? It's a, they would leave their buildings, leave the capital, the equipment, the, whatever they owned. They would flee to escape the war zone. What if those refugees had access to a hyper-portable, uninflatable, digital form of wealth? Mm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Leigh Heilpan Show. Joining me on the show today, we have Freedom Maximalist, Bitcoiner and the host of the What Is Money Show. Robert Breedlove, welcome. How are you? I'm doing good, Leigh. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you. Why are you here in Miami? Well, I've been traveling for a while, uh, doing a lot of stuff for the show. So I was in Lugano for the Plan B conference. I was in London for Jordan Peterson's ARC conference. Okay. Doing some interviews there, speaking on a panel. And just got back uh, less than a week ago, and I'm passing through on my way to see some family. And then, um, as I was telling you offline, I'm actually thinking about moving here. So kind of charting the territory a little bit. It's good. You'll love it. Um, you know, I think as, as Bitcoiners, we become such a such digital nomads. And I think it can be so exhausting going to different conferences and places. But Miami, I think, gives you everything you need. 
Yeah, it's very international, which yeah. is appealing. And then obviously good weather, big Bitcoin culture. Yeah. Um, good hustle culture, which is something I'm really looking to be in, like a place that moves fast, works hard. Um, and then there's a gym here that I love that I was telling you about. So yeah. I think it's it's got everything I need. I think you'll love it. And it has a big Bitcoin community and crypto community. Um, and there's always people passing through. There's always a crypto event happening, a Bitcoin event happening. So I think it's perfect. But um, as of today, Bitcoin is at 37, I think $500, 30, mm. sorry, $37,500. And you know, we always get so caught up in the price. Crypto Twitter, where we obviously initially connected Bitcoin Twitter, always is caught up in the price. Mm. But Bitcoin is so much more than just the price. And so I, I want to get your understanding on what would you say the case is for Bitcoin? Why is it so necessary? And, and why does that therefore make the price somewhat irrelevant? Well, I would first say that the price is actually super relevant. Okay. Um, and I, I don't, not in the way that you should just be focused exclusively on the price because that belies a lot of what Bitcoin is, right? There's a lot more to it than just the price. But the price is very important, right? The price, I think, is the instrument that commands the most attention in the world. Mm -hmm. Like the price of an asset as it moves, it's basically telling you there is this much of this thing available and there is this much demand registered for that thing. So that people are competitively bidding to obtain the thing. And so you're basically, in, a, in prices, you have these little data packets that are telling you um, how scarce and valuable something is. And so it is really important, but I think you need to dissect actually what prices are. One of the things Bitcoin fixes is price signals, actually. So when we're debasing money, you're actually interrupting that process of people competitively bidding for things to, to clear supply and demand. And you start to create uh, credit bubbles. Uh, you create the Austrian business cycle theory that Mises expanded on in the 50s. It basically says... When you start to distort these price signals, capital begins being allocated not in accordance with the plans and preferences of individuals, but rather with in accordance with plans and preferences of the state. So literally, all the work that we do to create all of this stuff around us, it's not the individuals that are doing the work that are actually dictating where that capital ends up and what form it's in. The state, via policy and coercion, starts to decide uh, you know, where tax dollars are being spent, how money's being printed, et cetera. And so I think that just distorts reality. It, it really screws up incentives because in a system where you have very strong private property and you can keep everything that you earn, well, then you have a very strong incentive to be productive and cooperative, right? And have good long-term trading relationships with people. But in a system where you can profit via coercion, you now have this counter incentive to be more politicking, be more um, deceptive, be more all the things that we associate with all these great statesmen, right? Like <laughs> Trudeau and Putin, everyone, like all, all the, all the states people. So the incentives, you know, if you want to talk about why Bitcoin is really important, I could go on and on and on, right? As I do on the podcast, we've done like almost 400 episodes at this point, talking about the nature of money, the importance of Bitcoin. But if I tried to sum that up in one phrase, I love the quote that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. And I think the incentive structures we build for ourselves are basically the container that we pour our human nature into. And so right now we have a very flawed container, the fiat currency complex, right? Where you have 
as I've described this, it's uh, basically a pyramid scheme, right? So those at the top benefit at the expense of those at the bottom. So you can think about this like pyramid, right? This is an actual hierarchy, but at the top of that pyramid is this spigot of stolen proceeds, all the printed money, all the tax dollars, etc. And you have people through these malincentives scurrying to the top of that pyramid, just trying to get close to the money printer, right? Get too big to fail or die trying. Um, get a state subsidy. Um, get an SBA loan. Like wh- whatever state handout you're trying to get, you're not focusing on satisfying the wants of your customers. You're focusing on pandering to coercive statesmen, right? So like it, it messes up the way we act, really. And um, I think Bitcoin, the importance of it would be as a new container, effectively. Like, so we'd have this hierarchy that doesn't have this spigot of stolen proceeds that everyone's fighting each other to get on top of. Um, or maybe another way to say it metaphorically is like you're actually you're dialing down the valve on that spigot, right? There'd be inflation would be less of a revenue option for the state. So over time, I think it really reorganizes human action away from coercion, compulsion, violence, and towards cooperation, peace, and trade. So it's a really big deal, but to say something like this sounds extremely radical. I Mm -hmm. think people have to do, you know, the number that's commonly thrown around is about 100 hours of research before you start to see the light. And um, so that's why I think that the main advice I can give people is to just study Bitcoin or study the nature of money. I don't expect you to take such a radical comment at face value, but there is a, there's a lot of depth to this rabbit hole, to say the least. What would you say some of the key problems are with the traditional system? I mean, I know, of course, there's money printing, um, you know, property rights, but can you expand on why those are such issues? Yeah, these things are the same thing, by the way. This is a very important point to grasp, is that money printing is a violation of private property rights. So if you're saving in dollars that the central bank is counterfeiting, then you're being plundered by the central bank, right? They're stealing your purchasing power by debasing the currency. So as I've repeated ad nauseum, and I'll just say it one more time, inflation is legal counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. Central banks are currency counterfeiting cartels. Like that's a really big problem. Yeah. And so what is property? Well, property is the socially acknowledged relationship between an owner and an asset. So if if I take it really philosophical, we say, what is justice? Justice is people getting what they deserve, right? This is this is what, there's like an ideal world, right? We talk about karma and things like this a lot. We ideally would like a world in which that most people, if not everyone, gets what they deserve, right? So they get what, they take out what they put in sort of thing. And so if justice is people getting what they deserve, all we're saying with private property is that people keep what they earn, right? It's either you built the thing or you traded the thing you built with someone else that built a thing consensually, Mm -hmm. right? That's private property in action. The violation of private property is when you have a non-consensual exchange. So you've just taken something from someone. So I, I usually like to boil these down into making versus taking. And we just want a world, again, back to that incentive model, we want to tilt the incentive structure such that people are engaged more in making, which is entrepreneurial activities, consensual trade, which is also peaceful. Thank goodness it works out like that, by the way. It's, the moral alternative is also the most pragmatic alternative. We become the most productive under pure capitalism and we become the most peaceful 
and away from the other model, which is the systemic violation of private property through currency counterfeiting slash inflation or taxation. And I would also throw in there fiat regulation, right? Lockdowns. Mm-hmm. That's a violation of private property. Yeah. When you tell someone, because you own yourself, right? You intrinsically, like no one else can move my arm. I am a self-owned, self-sovereign being as all are, as all, all of, as are all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you tell someone they can't come out of their house because there's a, you know, boogeyman pandemic out in the, the world, you're violating their private property. So yeah. it's not just stealing. It's also incarcerating people and limiting their freedom of movement action. And um, all of these things are just intrinsic, I think, to building uh, a rational, peaceful civilization. So the the more we can defund the institutions that do that, the better off we all are. And there's a term of yours, which I love, and we spoke about this on the last podcast that we did, which is fiat-induced psychosis. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is all the madness that we see in the world is a result of corrupt money. Um, so can you explain how, how, how is the money corrupt? And then also how does that then trickle down into all other aspects of, of the world and make everything insane? And also what are some examples of uh, fiat and juice psychosis? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's also a very big one. So I'd first like to credit the inspiration for this line of thinking to Matthias Desmet, who I had on the show. He wrote a book titled The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Uh, the actual term he uses is mass formation psychosis. I shortened it to mass psychosis. Um, I don't know if that's technically accurate or not, but it just makes more sense to me. And so he lays out a number of reasons that societies historically have given into, you know, societies that were very uh, successful. Right, they they lasted for a long time. They built up large stores of capital. They had, um, you know, somewhat fair rule of law. They they had, they had advanced the human enterprise, let's say, but in many times, in many places, they had given into this mass psychosis, which ultimately degenerates into totalitarianism. Totalitarianism would be like the ultimate form of mass psychosis, where you've basically deified an individual. Right, Stalin is God, or Mao is God, whatever it may be, and so. He outlines a number of reasons in his book that I think are excellent, but one that we talked about on the show together, this was maybe 18 months ago, I was asking him about if the violation of private property could contribute to that. And my thinking is, you know, you look around the world today, especially young people that are really getting victimized in the current inflationary regime, you can work two jobs, three jobs, you can hustle your ass off but the prices of houses keep soaring, right? It's um, productivity and wages keep diverging. So you can't, you're not able to keep what you earn, even if you work your ass off. And so what is that doing to a young person, a young mind is you're, you're almost losing your grip on reality. It's like the social contract is being broken. I'm doing everything that I learned, right? Save money, work hard, you know, take care of myself, what all the things, yet society is not rewarding my action. And so at some point, I think people start to become infuriated with that. And obviously when we say fiat-induced mass psychosis, again, we're talking about fiat currency, right? This this 
counterfeiting of currency, which is the violation of private property of savers. This is the the big one, right? This is, so to put some numbers on this that might be helpful, $6 trillion counterfeited in 2020 by the U.S. Um, $6 trillion, the average annual wage, $60,000. So if you divide $6 trillion by $60,000, you get $100 million hours of of human time stolen i hope i'm saying this correct. i'm sorry 100 million years of human oh, wow. time stolen if you divide that by 50 productive years on average per human life right you work from the age of roughly 20 to 70 then we're talking about 2 million hours worth of productive labor stolen through the counterfeiting of six trillion dollars so it's 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 a massive theft, and I think when you when when the social contract is not working for people in that way, it just leads you to become more unstable psychologically, right? You're more desperate, right? So if you, and another way to think about this, we're all civilized here, right? We're sitting here in a nice room, somewhat air conditioned, a little warm. We've got water, you know, all of our basic needs are met. We have the luxury of just talking to one another and enjoying our company. We don't need to fight over every sandwich. But if we plucked ourselves out and threw ourselves naked into the middle of the jungle, like we would get decivilized pretty quickly, right? We'd be For desperate, sure. like yeah. I've got to eat, I can eat. Yeah. Like that would be a, a total violation of private property. You're just like, you were totally moved to another place. All your stuff was taken you're in the middle of the jungle. You can't defend yourself from the wrath of nature. You would just be doing whatever it takes to find shelter and food and survival, basically. Inflation and taxation and all these forms of theft are just a gradient along that scale, right? You're just pushing people back towards the edges of the jungle and not letting them take control of their own life, right? Rand says, Ayn Rand said something interesting that if you can't control the fruits of your own labor, then no other human rights matter. Property rights are foundational to all human rights. So it seems to just make intuitive sense that if we're violating the basis of human rights, which is private property itself, that human rights start to get shaken up and then people lose their mind, right? Mm. And I don't know, you know, I don't know where this goes. I think we do have people sort of deifying the state today. They think that the answer is more regulation and I just don't think that's correct. I think the answer is more freedom. So Bitcoin, obviously, you believe is the answer to all of this. But I'm curious to what extent and in what way. So do you see Bitcoin in the future as a medium of exchange? We live, you know, we suddenly have hyper Bitcoinization and everything is obviously um, denominated in Satoshis and Bitcoin. Or do you see it as, um, you know, the ultimate store of value, digital property, digital gold? Where do you see Bitcoin come into play in in the future? Well, Bitcoin's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And we're throwing these different analogies at it, trying to understand it or mm. explain it. And I think that very attempt, the fact that there's so many people describing Bitcoin in so many different ways, is an indication of how profound it really is. Right? This is... Um, Similar to when the internet emerged, you know, like, there were all these weird analogies being thrown at it. It's like, oh, it's the information superhighway, it's a digital library, whatever. But none of it really captured what the internet actually is. Um, I think, you know, most fundamentally, 
it is a the best implementation of the ancient ideal that we have from the Magna Carta, which was signed in, I think, the year 1215 by King John. Life, liberty, inviolable property. You know, we inherited that in the United States Constitution. We swapped out inviolable property for the pursuit of happiness. I think that's a mistake. But the, the concept was the government should preserve those three things only, right? They should preserve life. We want to create uh, a field of action where people are not acting violently towards one another. Preserve liberty so they can move about freely, engage in entrepreneurship, do what interests them, you know, pursue uh, pursue your interests, create businesses, create value for others, solve problems creatively, et cetera, encourage entrepreneurship basically. And in that inherently risky pursuit, be able to keep everything that you earn, right? If you mm-hmm. stumble upon a successful solution to a consumer want and you create a very successful business, well then you should have the rights to all of the fruit of that labor, that whether it's physical or cognitive labor. And so, Bitcoin is most fundamentally the hardest form of property in the sense that I'm describing it. The word property gets thrown around a lot of different ways. A lot of people think it's just real estate, but that's not what I'm saying here, right? Again, I'm talking about this socially acknowledged relationship between owner and asset, right? So the, the your capacity to keep the things that you earn. Yeah. Bitcoin is the thing that is, it's almost like the most defensible bearer asset we've ever had. So it's trivially simple and inexpensive to secure, incredibly difficult to take. And so I think that's what it really is, right? That humans need recourse to something that, that can't be taken. So all these other analogies, and they're useful, don't get me wrong, digital gold, very useful, because gold has been like the monetary bedrock of the past 5,000 years Looking at the properties of gold, what made it good money, I think is a very good prism for understanding what Bitcoin is. I also say this ad nauseum, so I won't go through the whole thing, but gold was the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, and scarce asset historically. That's why it became money. If you understand those are the properties that made gold good money, you are better equipped to understand what makes Bitcoin the best money we've ever seen. It outcompetes gold in all five dimensions like a hundredfold. And so... These analogies are useful. Digital gold, the internet of money. Uh, one way I've put this recently is, you know, 15 years ago, gold and the internet had a baby and its name is Bitcoin. So that's another just kind of tongue-in-cheek way to say it. But um, most fundamentally, it is this idea, this implementation of justice that people can now go out into the world, create value for others, and keep that the, the, the value that they create, the profits that they generate and earn, you can keep that in a medium that cannot be confiscated from you. So it's, it's very fundamental to advancing human civilization. So speaking of not violating property rights, um, it's an interesting one because a lot of people really believe that Bitcoin was created by some type of government agency, the CIA, people point to Putin. So firstly, what's your take on that? And what's the probability that Bitcoin was created by a government agency? Um, And then also, who do you think created Bitcoin? Mm, I'll answer the second one first. I have no clue. Satoshi Nakamoto is not even like an inkling. Nothing. So the best theory that I've heard was that it was a collaboration between Hal Finney and yeah. Nick Zabo. It's, makes sense, right? They, a lot of their obviously Hal Finney was the second adopter of Bitcoin after Satoshi himself, and then a lot of Nick Zabo's work 
goes into these fields. Like, so these are two guys that are equipped enough to have perhaps pulled off a project as profound as this. I've also heard that some of Zabo's uh, writing, they've done analysis on his writing style and there's some matching to Satoshi, but you know, again, check my facts on all this. I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't really think it matters. Uh, you know, one of the most important things Satoshi did was disappear. Yeah. This, this cemented the decentralized mythology of Bitcoin and the fact that we have Bitcoiners now that can say things like we are all Satoshi, right? And the state doesn't have an individual to centrally target and denigrate and smear um, to tarnish the Bitcoin project. I think that's really important. Um, again, humans are kind of religious animals. Like we talked about people deifying the state and deifying authoritarians. Um, the, the Bitcoin creation myth is important. It's really important to cementing it as an actually decentralized project that no individual can control. Now, as far as did a government agency, could a government agency be responsible? I actually had an episode recently that was interesting uh, with a guy named G Money and he talked, I'll let you check out the episode. I couldn't rehash it all, but he has this theory that um, there were insiders inside like the NSA, the US government that were trying to create something to kill Leviathan, right? The, the, the state. And obviously the NSA created SHA-256, which is something that Bitcoin runs on. I think that's correct. Someone might have to fact check me on that as well. Uh, NSA created some essential cryptographic feature that Bitcoin uses. I don't know, it was SHA-256. I could be wrong about okay. it, but I'm pretty sure that NSA did create one essential cryptographic element of Bitcoin. I didn't know that. Um, but it, it, so maybe, that's a whole thing, that's his whole theory that there were insiders said, hey, this is wrong, what the central bank is in the state is doing, let's create this little project and push it out into the world. Or maybe they just helped it along who knows i thought that was just a very interesting conversation it really doesn't matter though this is the punchline it's like it doesn't matter people want to say things like oh nsa invented it totally bogus scam just meant to usher in cbdc's and i'm like okay why would the nsa create a technology that the nsa cannot stop to usher in a inferior alternative, which would be a CBDC. It doesn't like it doesn't make sense. And the fact, again, back to decentralization, like the fact that no one can control it and no institution can change the rules that it runs on and no central power can corrupt it or stop it or even interrupt it for that matter, that's the key value proposition. So even if a central power created it, then it created its own cyanide, basically. Yeah. It created its own poison pill. And so you, we could debate about this forever and ever and ever, but at the end of the day, I really don't think it matters because TikTok next block, 21 million, the end. You know, what's interesting is I, I, I think Bitcoin is, um, and I use this term lightly, somewhat anti-government. Mm. just because i think that to be pro bitcoin requires you to be skeptical of central banks and mm -hmm. government policies right because you want to be sovereign over your money you mm. don't trust what they're doing with your money and so the whole idea is that you're skeptical of government mm -hmm. so for me 
I get a little confused when I see people who are, who are pro-Bitcoin, therefore skeptical of government, but are then pro-government and not skeptical of government when it comes to other issues, whether it's like um, schooling, education, um, you know, the pandemic, um, taxation and things like that. So I saw a podcast that you did with a really prominent um, Bitcoiner um, and, you know, he's very pro-Bitcoin, yet many times he's been very... Um, pro-government, more government intervention. I think on this particular episode, you were debating taxes with him and you were obviously anti-taxes to some extent and, and he was pro-taxes. Mm. So in your in your mind, can you explain to me, how can you be a Bitcoiner yet be pro-government intervention in other aspects of life? Yeah, I'd like to get a little higher resolution on the word government, first of all. So it's clear that we have to have governance of some kind, right? Even your, your homeowners association is a little micro governance structure so that people don't have junk in their front yards in your neighborhood. Um, and I like to distinguish that from the state. And so the government is more like, how do we make decisions related to these common pool resources? Um, and the state is more like, follow this rule or else. Mm. And so I think the real problem in the world, and this is another fiat-induced issue, is that we have, when you, the central government has a money printer, it never stops growing, right? So we get less and less localism, less and less local governance, and we get more and more centralized statism. Because again, if you can just print money, you never incur economic losses, you grow forever. Right, that's like a core problem. So, this is where we get into the weeds of this argument. It's like we, we can't just say anti-government, pro-government. Right. Right? It's like okay, well, we need some governance. Obviously, we need homeowners associations, for instance. There's a bunch of other examples, um, but we don't. But we need really to be able to opt in or opt out, right? And this is where the localism comes in. It's like you could have certain rules governing a specific territory. If I don't agree with the rules, then what I can do is I can participate in politics, in local politics, and try to change them in a way that I that I agree with more, or I can exit to another jurisdiction. I can opt out. We don't have a lot of that opt out today. You know, you would say people, oh, move to another country. Okay. In the United States, we have the exit tax. If you have above a $2 million net worth, which isn't that much money anymore, you get taxed on everything you take out of the US, when you say, hey, Uncle Sam, I don't like the services you're giving me for the price that you're charging me, I'm going elsewhere, taking my business elsewhere, right? Just like any other free market participant, Uncle Sam puts a gun to your head and says, okay, give me X percent of everything above 2 million. That's not an opt-out, right? That's yeah. not a free market situation. That's the state imposing a rule on you at the point of a gun. Like That's the thing that I think we really need to eliminate. Governance, not so much. So to get to your question, how can someone be pro-state or pro-government and pro-Bitcoin at the same time? It's complicated because not only for those reasons, right? What do you mean by government? Are you talking about, you know, state? Are you talking about local governments? Governance, is this globalism? Is it localism? But also because Bitcoin is so many different things to so many different people, right? Bitcoin theoretically, can be uh, a treasury asset for uh, a sovereign nation like the United States, right? The United States could start to put it on its balance sheet, for instance. 
Um, does that make Bitcoin bad all of a sudden? I would say no. Uh, that's just another organization. Just, you know, Michael Saylor's got MicroStrategy. He puts that on his corporation's balance sheet. Well, what is the state? The state is just a mega corporation that specializes in coercion. So it could put Bitcoin on its balance sheet too. The people that support that, like I'm not sure, I, I would have to get into the details with them. It's like, okay, what do you mean when you say you're pro-government, you're pro-state, pro-regulation? Are you talking about local government? Are you talking about central government? Well, let's say- I think it would be very difficult to be pro-central statism and pro-Bitcoin at the same time. Because again, as I said earlier, Bitcoin is a poison pill to centralized statism. So anyone that that shares in that belief, I think you you have some cognitive dissonance. But that does not preclude the possibility of being pro-local governance- and being pro Bitcoin. Okay. Cognitive dissonance then. Yes. That's a, yeah. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm curious about these local governments, small jurisdictions. I've heard the idea, I think it was Saifedean who, who speaks about like having monarchs and being Monarchy, able to, yeah. yeah, the monarchy and being able to move to different jurisdictions if you don't like it. I mean, would that even be realistic? And then with a the monarchy, they're obviously unelected. So isn't that just like another dictator, centralized power? How, how does that work? The answer is I have no idea. And that's the great thing because Bitcoin, again, by making coercion and theft more expensive, basically, or less profitable, right. to be more simple, you're shrinking the revenues for the centralized state. And so that's giving people more of the purchasing power and productivity that we're creating, it's going into the hands of people that can now self-organize more effectively because one, they're not out trying to outrun inflation because inflation is no longer a thing on a Bitcoin standard. And two, because they'd have at least some of their wealth or they have recourse to this hyper portable asset called Bitcoin. So you can more effectively vote with your feet or vote with your wallet, right? Mm-hmm. If you go to the jurisdiction that treats you best and then all of a sudden you have States or governments, more specifically, probably more local because they can't overgrow through the fiat spigot, having higher accountability to the preferences of their customers. Right. This this power to say no or opt out, this is what keeps every producer in an economy honest. Right. If you go to buy a car out here in Miami and the guy's trying to get a high price out of you and you're trying to negotiate him down. What's keeping him honest with you is that you can say no at any point, walk out of that car dealership, walk next door to his competitor, and start negotiating with him, right? The fact that we can have these competitive bidding processes is what keeps prices low and output and quality high. So we don't have that in the state today, and that is the problem. So what what does a Bitcoin standard governance model look like? I have no idea, but we have a lot more experimentation we have a lot of different flavors for a lot of different people. And that's a good thing, right? That's more choice. That's more optionality. That's more freedom. And that's, you know, what Bitcoin's all about. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. 
And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send Chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I, I find that there's we're closer to one world government, mm. you know, than um, separate jurisdictions, um, you know, particularly in the, you know, either you're the West or the East. Mm. That's it. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think you have any more rights going from the UK to America or even Dubai in America. I don't think mm. Dubai has any more rights just because it's so pro-crypto. So yeah, no, I think that we we absolutely have zero choice. Um, but what's interesting right now, and I, and I know that you talk a lot about this, Bitcoin and its ability to, well, not Bitcoin, let, let's say uh, the fiat system and its ability to fund wars and encourage mm. wars and make wars profitable. Right mm. now, obviously, the US have spoken about being able to fund both wars. So fund the war in Europe and the mm. US wants to fund the war in the Middle East. Mm. So can you talk to me about how Bitcoin is a solution to this? And I know it's really cringe, but I always see, um, you know, somebody on Twitter, I think it was once Max, Max Kaiser, mm -hmm. he like uh, took a picture of uh, the Palestinians fighting and was like, Bitcoin fixes this. Mm. Does it fix it? Look, it's a big, it's a big leap, right? right. And I'm not going to say that it's wrong. As, as I said at the beginning of the show, Human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. So we do change over time, right? We have become much more civilized, much more moral. We have moral intuitions that we all, many of us share today. They did not exist in, say, ancient Egypt, right, where there's pharaoh god kings and everyone's a subject. So we have managed to change uh, the cultural paradigm that we plug into over time. It has evolved. It is, uh, we have innovated perhaps let's say culture towards being more peaceful over time, over the long arc of human history. Granted, there's been many, uh, in many inter periods of extreme violence, even regression like the dark ages, right? We, we progress so far and then civilization takes a few steps back before we take a few steps forward. But, 
I say all this just to, to make the point that we are, there is a malleability to being human, that we can change. Like we're not doomed to just be forever these apes battling over territory. You know, we have, we're imbued with rationality. We can share ideas, especially fast, you know, there's more liquidity of ideas today than ever before in the digital age. Like we can do this and then yeah. boom, it's all over the world at zero cost, right? The ideas can spread like wildfire in the digital age. And there's a lot more voices participating, right? So you have a lot more dialogue and discourse. And so this thing with Bitcoin is like, okay, you could rerun, say, um, like a World War II example, where when Hitler invades Poland, as soon as they surrender, what is his the next thing Hitler does? Well, Hitler goes to the central bank and he raids the gold because guess what? War is very expensive. He just spent a ton of money funding his troops to get him over there and conquer Poland. What does he need first? The gold. So he can go and refund the war effort and continue, right? Now, if you just rerun that scenario on a Bitcoin standard as a thought experiment and say we still have states that are at war with one another, it hasn't gone away even though we're on a Bitcoin standard. Hitler, Blitzkrieg comes in, conquers Poland. He goes straight to the central bank and, oh, but they've stored, stored everything in Bitcoin in a multi-sig. He can't just grab it and take it and leave and go right. back to business. There's an unseizable asset here that he can't take. So how then would the Hitler war machine be funded in that scenario? And again, this is a thought experiment. I'm not saying it's deterministic and that's exactly how it would happen, but there's a very deep importance to the idea of things being, of having a medium that is very expensive to violate via violence or coercion, right? If it's economically if it's unprofitable, right? The war all of a sudden, the war that was profitable on a gold standard is not profitable on a Bitcoin standard. If you don't have profitability, you don't have people doing it. Mm-hmm. People do whatever, do will do whatever is profitable, right? People will do horrible things for profit. People will kill people and sell their organs for profit. And uh, just to be clear- wars for profit. Just but, to be clear, why, why is war profitable on a gold standard but not on a Bitcoin standard? The seizability of the gold. And I'm not saying it's it's not a binary. It's not war is profitable, then war is not profitable. It's less profitable on a Bitcoin standard because Bitcoin is more difficult to seize, right. if not impossible to seize. You could still go to war over natural resources, right? But as the war is encroaching, the pe- like people, refugees that are fleeing, right? Typically, they leave behind all their wealth, right? It's a, they would leave their buildings, leave the capital, the equipment, the, whatever they owned. They would flee to escape the war zone. What if those refugees had access to a hyper-portable, uninflatable, digital form of wealth? Mm. You know, So capital could, could kind of run away from war zones more efficiently and more easily, and this lowers the profitability of war, and I think therefore lowers its prevalence. So, I, I mean, it's a bit abstract and theoretical. Obviously, we have no historical example of this. Um, a, the, the book on this and the bibliography to this book, The Sovereign Individual, I think is very useful. There is a literature on the economics of violence and it's it's telling, right? Humans have changed the way they self-organize as the our ability to it as the profitability of attack or defense changes, the shape of our society has changed in lockstep. And so what we're saying with Bitcoin is we have a a 
great leap forward in the defensibility of purchasing power, right? You can put your private keys on your brain. You can cross a border with a billion dollars on your brain. You have total plausible, total plausible deniability, right? They can, you, they can search you. They can cavity search you. Like they're not going to see your private keys. Do you believe keys. that though? Like, sorry, just to interrupt you on your train of thought there. How accurate is that though? Because I'm understanding that like more, they're building more software systems which allow allow government agencies to track and identify who owns what. You mean uh, on Bitcoin? All cryptocurrencies, just mm. by looking at an address. Yeah. I, I don't know. This is AML and KYC. And if you buy Bitcoin through a- I, I mean like non-KYC Bitcoin. Well, if you put it through a mixer, then you can anonymize yourself. So the privacy technologies are improving. There are ways to privatize your stash. Uh, it's not for everyone, right? You have to be somewhat technically proficient, but there are ways to anonymize your holdings. And I think it'll get easier over time. And oh it gets God. easier in line with, if governments say um, are acting on that knowledge more and more, they start blacklisting people that have bought Bitcoin through KYC exchanges or they're tracking people yeah. that have acquired it non-KYC. Obviously, if you acquire it directly via mining, that's very difficult for a government to track. It's like you... You generated uh, the Bitcoin organically, effectively, and like they, they're none the wiser unless you're a publicly traded mining company, right? Maybe there's some tracking there. Yeah. Um, but if governments are acting on that information and they're coercing people and they're sending them scary grams and all of this, well, guess what happens? The demand for privacy tech goes up and we start producing more, better, easier, cheaper privacy tech. And, um, yeah, I think people are just always going to use the tools, that the best tools that are available to them. And this is going to drive innovation in, in privacy tech and get more people out of the eyes, the eye of Sauron, so to speak. Do you think that there's a genuine concern that governments could crack down on Bitcoin? Because they're already cracking down on privacy coins. I think Monero was delisted from an exchange obviously we saw what happened with tornado cash um i saw crypto.com now um you have to you have to kyc the wallet that the money comes from so even mm. if it doesn't come from an exchange but it comes from you know a, um, a non-custodial wallet you, you have to kyc yourself otherwise the money gets halted so governments are doing everything that, that they can to um eliminate any privacy so do you think Bitcoin is at any risk from any government? Well, I mean, this is the magic of decentralization, right? Um, so purely in terms of privacy, again, I would just defer to like the last argument is the more you violate people's privacy or act on um, information of individual holders, you use that against them, you're just going to incentivize people to mix their coins, use different privacy tech, et cetera. Um, but as far as like government attacks on Bitcoin and is that a risk, I think the recent mining ban by China mm. is a very illustrative example of the magic of decentralization. It's like China's 1.4 billion people. The CCP is the most iron-fisted authoritarian regime that's ever existed in the history of the human race, right? The most technically advanced, the most well-armed most oppressive, the most organized, um, the most controlling, 
they outlawed Bitcoin mining on their own territory. Yeah. And at that time, about 50% of the global hash rate was coming out of China. Two years later, I think now, or roughly two years yeah, later, two years, yeah. still 25% of Bitcoin's global hash rate is coming out of China. So if that regime, if the CCP, with its strongest iron fist in human history, cannot squash Bitcoin mining, which is the most obviously physically represented aspect of Bitcoin, it's where the rubber meets the proverbial road, right? You actually have physical capital in physical places, which is the specialty of government. Um, if they can't stop this incentive structure from people, people are still mining Bitcoin in China. It's still happening. Yeah. Is it the government? Is it government insiders? Like, again, we, we use these terms as like models of simplification. China's not like one indivisible aggregate that moves, you know, uh, moves as one unit basically. There's billions of people in there. There's billions of power factions and billions of uh, competing families and interests. So whoever can grease the skids and get the Bitcoin mining done gets it done. Mm -hmm. And it's still happening. That's the most iron-fisted government or state on earth. Mm -hmm. So if they can't stop the most physical aspect of Bitcoin, which is Bitcoin mining, then what state can? Mm. So this is the real magic of decentralization. And all the other examples you gave, Tornado Cash, uh, et cetera, why are they getting squashed because they're not decentralized right right there's one team there's one group there's one headquarters yeah. there's a, one development team um so states are really good at cutting the heads off of centralized organizations they states don't know how to deal with decentralization bitcoin's the most decentralized organization humans have ever had and we've spoken about states which are anti-bitcoin or you know hostile towards bitcoin but of course there are other countries which are very pro-Bitcoin. So obviously El Salvador adopted Bitcoin. Um, what's your opinion on that whole experiment? Do you think it's been successful so far? And also, which country do you think is next to adopt Bitcoin? So I'd first say I don't have a strong opinion on El Salvador. I've only visited for three or four days earlier this year. It does seem like Bukele has cleaned up a lot of crime. Yeah. Right? And... The locals that I spoke to there, um, you know, entrepreneurs just selling street food, right? Like an old lady selling street food. Yeah. She was saying before Bukele, five times a day, these gangsters would come around and extort her for money. Wow. They called it La Renta. They had to pay the rent to these fucking gangsters. Wow. After Bukele, none of that, <clears throat> right? So that has been successful. But that is not related to Bitcoin per se. I mean, maybe his principles or whatever have something to do with that. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know the guy. Um, making Bitcoin legal tender, I don't think that's so... First of all, I don't like the idea of legal tender. Again, this is a violation of private property, telling people what money they have to use. I don't agree with that. You should just let the market decide. And I don't think it's terribly useful at this stage in Bitcoin's evolution because it's not purchasing power stable in the short run, obviously. Um, now, in the long run, I think Bitcoin is the most purchasing power stable asset we'll ever have because it has a fixed supply. But you don't need to force people to use it as a medium of exchange to bootstrap adoption. I think the use of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange comes naturally as it appreciates as a store value. Basically, the more... It's market capitalization grows, the lower its volatility becomes. 
and people that have large unrealized gains in their positions have an incentive to spend it, right? If I bought Bitcoin at a dollar and it's $37,000 today, I have a huge incentive to spend. If I bought it at 30,000, I have much lesser of an incentive to spend. So the market also sorts that out. Um, from, and I don't know a lot about this, but from what, I'm heard, what I have heard from Max and Stacy, the securities law framework that El Salvador has put in place is very pro-Bitcoin and anti-shitcoin, which I think is a good thing. Again, I haven't read it myself. I don't know the details, but the idea of a government having a pro-Bitcoin securities law framework um, should work in that country's favor and also should honor human freedom, frankly, if you're giving people access to Bitcoin and um, you know the ability to create businesses and securities that that honor that uh, ability to interact with Bitcoin. I think that's a very useful thing for human freedom. Which country do you think is next to make it legal tender? I have no idea. You don't know? I have no idea. Um, humans transmit culture via imitation. I don't know who's going to imitate El Salvador next, but I would think that it's going to kind of work its way up from the bottom, right? Mm. El Salvador is a very small country, very small GDP, a small population relative to the other 200 some odd countries. I would expect it to move from the smaller countries to the medium countries, to the larger countries, just by nature of how fast a smaller country can move. I would also expect, and this is sort of paradoxical or ironic, I don't know, authoritarian regimes can move faster. And you might see another pivot in China at some point mm. where they just say, hey, we have a, t we, decades of central planning have created an overcapacity of energy production in China that they don't have anything to do with it, right? They have these right. ghost cities, like it's just they have an excess capacity for energy production. Why is not all of that going into Bitcoin mining right now? It could literally monetize all this extra capacity you built through central planning and enrich your country. So, if the CCP is smart, then they'll figure that out. It's not that complicated, right? You're just letting money burn when you're not allocating these energy assets to the production of Bitcoin if it's not being sold on the market, right? It's just, it's curtailed or unused energy. Um, you might see a larger authoritarian country move a little bit faster than, say, the U.S., which is in democratic, woke gridlock. Yeah. We are in democratic work with gridlock. Yes. That's a great way to put it. Um, but what's interesting as well is that a lot of the greatest investors of all time, you know, people like Warren Buffett, you have the likes of Charlie Munger, um, they can't get on board with Bitcoin. You know, Warren Buffett called it rat poison. Uh, Peter Schiff, anytime Bitcoin moves, Peter Schiff mm -hmm. is like, it's all going to come crashing down, you know. So I'm curious, what's your take? Why do you think these individuals just refuse to get on board with Bitcoin? Do you think it's because it goes against their own personal interests or are they just old and they don't get it? Human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. These guys are talking their book. 40% of Berkshire Hathaway, I think, is fiat bank stocks. Uh, obviously, Schiff is in the gold business. Um, that seems pretty obvious. I actually think Munger is right, though. Or was it Munger or Buffett that said the rat poison? Buffett. Buffett. Oh, Buffett's no, right. Buffett. Buffett's right. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is rat, is rat poison. poison. Yeah. Why is... 
Central well, because banks, it kills the rats. Central banks <laughs> are the rats. It's, do you know what? I've never actually like internalized that. Bitcoin is rat poison. That's a good thing. Yeah. That's I've a called great it, thing. Um, <laughs> I, I've always, well, Rothbard often describes the state, these, the state, the central bank, these other systematic violators of private property. It's basically a parasite host relationship. If you don't have productive market actors creating wealth, then there's nothing to confiscate, right? right. So if the if the market were to die, the ho- the parasite would automatically die. So statism is like a parasite on the free market, effectively. So I've, I've described Bitcoin as parasiticide. It actually is killing the parasite. Again, back to this whole idea of the poison pill. Mm-hmm. You're just giving people recourse to something that is not amenable to the revenue model of the parasite, which is to steal. And so when you make stealing more difficult, you make it less profitable, you make the business of stealing less prevalent. So Bitcoin is rat poison. That's actually so fascinating. I never I never internalized that. <laughs> um, I think they need to come up with a different, a different saying. Yeah. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near-zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. Um, and then, you know, we started this interview talking about the price. And I think something which has really been pushing up the price is this um, spot ETF, the, the spot Bitcoin ETF, which is supposedly coming. Um, so firstly, when do you think that'll be approved? What impact do you think that'll have on Bitcoin? And then my last question is, are you concerned that that might make Bitcoin more centralized? Because now you have all these major institutions buying up more and more Bitcoin. I mean, BlackRock already owns practically everything, mm-hmm. um, to put it um, in a simplistic way. Mm-hmm. So 
do you think that could make Bitcoin more centralized? So when, I have no idea, right? We've been talking about ETFs for years in the Bitcoin space. I don't really care. I'm not that interested in it. Um, I do think it will be a major widening of capital channels flowing into Bitcoin, right? There's a lot of a lot of institutions, um, a lot of pools of capital that cannot access Bitcoin for one reason or another, either their mandate or um, whatever it may be. An ETF is something that's much more accessible for most of these capital pools. So I would expect to see upon approval, whenever it happens, there would be a lot more capital inflow into Bitcoin. Of course, yeah. As far as the centralization concern, you know, the concentration of ownership of Bitcoin, obviously through a BlackRock ETF, could become more concentrated in the hands of the shareholders of or the the LPs or GPs in these funds that BlackRock operates. But that bears no influence on the core consensus protocol of Bitcoin itself. So this this is a common sort of misunderstanding. People think that, oh, if you concentrate the ownership of Bitcoin into fewer hands, then they'll increase the supply or they'll change the block size or they'll do this or that. It's like, that's not how Bitcoin works, right? Nodes choose miners enforce. It doesn't matter who actually owns the Bitcoin. You're not voting. You're not voting for the core consensus protocol through the owning of Bitcoin. So even Satoshi with a million Bitcoin could not reappear and be like, hey guys, it's a 42 million cap now. You know, it's like it just wouldn't work. So that is much less of a concern to me. And again, back to the poison pill analogy, I think a lot of the money inside of BlackRock is wealth earned, earned, earned is not the right word, wealth acquired mm-hmm. um, through sh- shares owned in central banks and other such institutions centered on coercion, compulsion, theft, violence. Um, I think that the monetization of Bitcoin, which would be accelerated by BlackRock ETF, is going to undermine those businesses. So it's dissolving, you know, it's it, things like BlackRock won't exist, I think, on a Bitcoin standard, or at least won't be as powerful and as prevalent. Now, it's not to say that just perfectly fixes it, because obviously if they acquire a lot of Bitcoin at a low price and Bitcoin monetizes, then okay, those same rich people that were rich from, you know, theft and, and grift before are still rich, but at least they can't impose the same old shenanigans and games and, and theft on the Bitcoin standard. So it's not, you know, there is no perfect fix. Human history is a, is a mess, right? It's a crucible of violence and theft and lying. The best we can do is introduce something like a new incentive structure that can hopefully help us correct our, our behavior and so um, BlackRock ETF, no idea when. I think it ex- is, it's an accelerant to Bitcoin's monetization and not a threat to its decentralization. So you're making a distinction between um, owning a lot of Bitcoin versus mining the Bitcoin, which makes a lot of sense. Um, but this is something someone said to me the other day and I actually know, didn't know what to respond to them. So it'll be interesting to hear your take. What if somebody like BlackRock started buying up all the different mining pools? Um, and so now they have more than a 51% mm. ownership of all the Bitcoin mining. Could they then 
then it's centralized and they can then change the the laws of the network and the and the math of the network is that a possibility you know i would point people to the sailor series which is the first series i did on my show and sailor's way smarter than i am about this and he walks through the math of like what that would look like not blackrock specifically but if you wanted to 51 percent attack the network yeah well here's how much equipment you'd have to buy here's how much electricity right. you would need. it's difficult but someone like blackrock could afford it in theory, but there's also these temporal, like it would. There's lead time, like you need to be able to buy, to mobilize all of this equipment. You're saying if BlackRock just went out and bought them immediately, um, I don't know. I guess that's a good thought experiment. But I, th- um, I think in general, Bitcoin mining network responds adversarially. So if that happens, um, you're going to create the ultimate arms race to build more Bitcoin miners, right? Mm. If BlackRock's getting into the game, that would be crazy. And they're buying all the Bitcoin miners and that's the largest capital pool, one of the largest capital pools on earth, wouldn't every competitor to that capital pool immediately look to do the same thing? Mm. And so you just get a lot more Bitcoin mining, a lot more places, a lot more security for the network, a lot more decentralization. Interesting. So, yeah, I don't know. This is the weird thing about Bitcoin. It's like... I've called it a positive vortex of incentives. It's like no matter which way you attack this thing, it just always pays you to compete honestly in the marketplace. Yeah. And it it just resists all control. It suffers no kings. It's a very strange thing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. So just finally... What are you working with at the moment? What do you have? Like, do you have any interesting guests coming up on the What Is Money show? What are you, what are you focused on right now? Yeah, so I'm actually interviewing uh, an author that I've, that orange pilled me before Bitcoin, I guess. Not orange pilled. He black pilled me on central banking. G. Edward Griffith. Okay. I'm sorry, G. Edward, G. Edward Griffin. He's the author of The Creature from, from Jekyll Island, which is a book about the inception of the Federal Reserve, the oh, nature of money. That. Um, the history of central banking. It's really good. It's a free audio book on YouTube. Okay. They have an abridged version. It's really good. Um, I'm talking to him tomorrow, so I'm really excited about that. I've been trying to get him on the show for like a year. And that's really my focus, focusing on the podcast. I want to start doing more in-person episodes, especially after I relocate. relocate. Uh, doing some writing, and I've been doing some public speaking um, I interviewed some guests at the events that I mentioned. I was at Lugano and, and Arc. So that's been it. Just uh, working on the show, trying to orange pill the world. And um, life's pretty good. What did you do before Bitcoin? So I had a degree in accounting and finance. And I was basically a career CFO. And then I ran a, ran a hedge fund immediately before starting the podcast. So basically been an accounting and finance guy most of my career. Got it. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So Bitcoin is the natural evolution of that. Triple entry bookkeeping. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm excited to check out um, your podcast. I'm gonna w- with your with your guest. I'm gonna look at that book. I haven't haven't actually heard of it. What was it called again? The creature. The creature from Jekyll Island. The creature from Jekyll yeah. Island. I need to read that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if you like audiobooks, but the audiobooks done really well on YouTube, and it's I think it's an abridged version too, so it's only maybe five hours. Oh, okay, wow. And uh, it's really good. I, I think I have to credit him too because I read this book a long time ago. I was probably 20 years old, so almost 20 years ago. 
And I didn't, I re-listened to it maybe six months ago, the audiobook. And he actually has a chapter in the book, What is Money? And he goes oh, nice. into the nature of money. Yeah. I, didn't, I was like, I don't know. I subconsciously wow. just named the show because of that. But yeah. I guess I should give him some credit because he has a very excellent explanation of the nature of money. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. You know, I know you're only in Miami for a short period of time. So it's been great to grab you while you're here. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's been such a good conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And where can people find you and follow everything that you're doing? Yeah, so you can find me at whatismoneypodcast.com. And then Twitter is my biggest social platform, which is at breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.